We are in the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to be sharing for just a little while this morning uh, from Acts 23, 12. And at this point in the story, you know, we, we, it's, it's, it's coming to the end of the story, at least their story. As I said, you know, our story continues, Acts 29. But, and the story ends on a cliffhanger. It doesn't really tell you how the story resolves with Paul and everything he's going through. And the reason for that is intentional because it's not a story about Paul. It's a story about Jesus' work on the earth, and that continues. And so uh, we are now living this story as the modern church. But the, but the story move, moves along, and I have thought to myself, what does God want to say through these last few chapters of this book? It's narrative. I don't want to skip through sections of, of interesting narrative and, and uh, miss out on, on what's going on with Paul. So what does God want me to do? And a friend of mine who's a pastor sent me an outline. He goes, this is, this is what other pastors have done when they've gotten to the end of Acts, as I was talking to him about it. And, and I looked at it, and I'm like, this is a stretch. Like, I, like, this outline doesn't work for me at all. I'm just going to go and say, God, what do you want to say through this this week and read through the narrative with you? We can experience the story together and just draw out the things that have really come to mind for me. So as we get into Acts, uh, we're going to read a, a pretty big section together. And uh, this is probably week 42 of our series in the book of Acts. Pretty, pretty big one. So we're going to be in 2312. And uh, we remember in 2311, that's when the Lord came to Paul in the midst of his suffering and trials and said to him, take courage as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But um, today... Uh, we are going to see uh, just this, this narrative, but, but this, this microcosm story of how one particular person responded to God and his work in his life. And I think it's very telling and interesting for us. So let's read together, 23.12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Spoiler alert. Paul lived for four more years. <laughs> Question, did any of these religious people die because of their amazing oath? No, because religious people always can find loopholes to get out of their own oaths, right? You know, they're good like that. So the next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy, bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. This is not a good reason to fast, guys. If you're going to fast, don't, don't, don't let it be because you're going to kill somebody, okay? But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. So the centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him, but don't give it to them, because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. 
They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops, and I rescued him. Big, big pat on the back for him. Actually, it was a little kid that rescued Paul, when you think about it. In the sovereignty of God. For I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of the plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they left the cavalry to, to go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. This is a really, really uh, interesting story. This little boy, Paul's sister's son, happened to overhear of a plot against Paul's life and through a series of events, actually saved him. This is the sovereignty of God at work. You know, Paul was, was being rescued by God's care for him. You know, every little uh, detail God was attending to. And I'm sure that in every step, Paul was praying, and the believers were praying for him, and God provided this young person. There's no age limit on how God can use a, a person, you know? Their age, and no matter how young or how old they are, you know, God uses people, and God has this providence that's working through everybody's life, and this is no, no exception. I love this quote I read this week in a commentary. It's from Archbishop William Temple. He said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, coincidences stop happening. So that's kind of funny. But Paul's, in his mission, being bathed in prayer, you know, through this child, uh, he is delivered from, from death. Verse tw uh, chapter 24, and this gets into the, today's narrative. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. That's a lot of uh, complimenting here. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, 
I know that for a number of years you have been judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. And there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So Paul, you know, these Jewish people bringing Paul forward and saying he's he's, uh, desecrated the temple, they accused, they, they accused him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was against the law. That didn't happen. They were accusing him of you know, disregarding the law and the prophets and the traditions and, and hope in God. None of that was true. You know, Paul was a good, uh, upstanding Jew who had even, not only had he paid to become ceremonially clean uh, to go through the temple worship and go through all those hoops earlier in the book of Acts, he had paid for several other Jewish men to become ceremonial clean as well. So Paul is like completely uh, following every uh, part of the law, and he deeply respects the law. And so these, these, um, these are, charges are very unfounded. So in verse 22, Then Governor Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up to Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or even against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before before me there on these charges? Paul answered, 
I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I'm guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. And just through this, through the sovereignty of God, if you think about back in uh, chapter 23, verse 11, the Lord Jesus came to Paul and said, take courage as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And through the series of events, going directly to Caesar in Rome is exactly what happened. It's just a, quite an amazing story of how God was, was sharing uh, the gospel uh, with, with the world and expanding the church in Paul's life. But that's not really what I wanted to focus on today. Uh, in, the, in the final few minutes I have, I, I am very fascinated by Acts 24, uh, and, you, and we'll start in verse 25. And there's this character in the text named Governor Felix uh, and his wife, Drusilla. And, uh, and they come to Paul. And as Paul talks about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix becomes afraid and says, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. There's really no way from the text of understanding why uh, Felix had this reaction to Paul. But Paul is teaching about some very specific things. He's teaching about self-control. He's teaching about uh, the coming judgment and righteousness. These three topics. And if you do a little digging in history, you find out a little bit more interesting information about Governor Felix. According to Josephus, Drusilla, Felix's wife, was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, and they had transgressed the ancestral laws. Uh, she, she left her husband for Felix. And actually, I looked in another source. In this other source, Felix had actually seduced Drusilla using Simon, the sorcerer, who we read about in Acts 8, in this very shifty way, he had manipulated the situation so that she left her husband and ended up with Felix. And so it's kind of this, um, this shifty situation. And, uh, and this, the, the, her original husband, Azizus, the king of Emesa, uh, ended up you know, kind of duped by this whole situation. So Felix brings Drusilla to Paul, Paul knows exactly uh, his history and what's gone on, and Paul actually speaks very specifically and pointedly to the sin that's in their life. And if you remember from, uh, from Matthew 16, I think it was, John the Baptist goes to Herod, and he confronts Herod specifically about the sin of, of Herod taking his brother's wife. He, he confronts him very specifically, and... John guy's head lopped off for that one, if you remember. Because the powers, when they're confronted with their sin, they will often resort to violence. But very much in the, in, in the tradition of the Old Testament, uh, Paul confronts the powers, Governor Felix, with a very specific sin, talking about self-control, talking about the coming judgment, and talking about uh, righteousness. And Felix's response... Uh, hearing the word of the Lord for him, I think is absolutely hilarious. Because this is something we can, all, we can all identify with this. That's enough for now. 
you may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Let's bring it to home here. God is always working out for our best interest as people. And that includes pointing out specific areas of sin in our lives that are killing us and, killing and hurting other people around us. Um, and we, might, we, we may not think that God cares about these small things that seem to be very contained, but he does. Because he is a God who really, he sees all the interrelatedness of human beings and how everything that we do whether good or bad, affects not only us, but those around us. So he really cares. And he has our best interests in mind. He does not delight in punishing wicked people for their sins. It says that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked in the Bible. That's not what God's game is. He doesn't want to destroy people. He wants to guide people into righteousness uh, while they still have the chance to repent and turn to him. Um, God wants to free us from all the sin that entangles us and drags us down so that we can live life to the full. And when the Holy Spirit comes to us with a word of truth, just like uh, when, when Paul came to, to Felix, you know, we have the same options as the governor himself. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He's not going to push his agenda on you. He will convict you. He's not going to push his agenda on you. Uh, we have the same options as Felix. We can either say, that's enough for now. You may leave to the Holy Spirit. Or we can heed what he's saying and we can let it affect us and we can turn from that thing and we can walk according to the Spirit. Paul says in, in, in the scriptures, uh, if we walk according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit we put, put to death the misdeeds of the body, we will live. The Holy Spirit, uh, much like Paul, much like John the Baptist, is on a mission for us to be fully free and full in him. And he's on a mission to point out those very specific things which are hindering that from happening. And so, you know, we have this option. We can either say, that's enough for now. I will send for you when it's convenient, when it's the right time for me to turn, then I'll send for you. Or we can heed that and we can come to a deeper a relationship with God and a deeper freedom than we'd experienced. I love the, uh, the teaching. In a book I read, it says, in a spiritual kingdom, victory is never achieved through rebellion, but only in submission to the king. Only in surrendering our lives to the king of our lives, God, uh, Jesus Christ. You know, when we get convicted by God, we really have only three options. We can rebel against him, continue in sin. We can resign ourselves to our sin, just staying in the same spot, or we can surrender to God. And when we surrender to God, when we really give up that thing and say, God, yes, I'm willing to change that area that you've pointed out, the Holy Spirit uh, the, comes in and empowers us to turn from that and to be, to be transformed. Uh, that's why it says in the scriptures, uh, if you put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Holy Spirit, you will live. But that decision is all important because God is not going to push us outside of the scope of our, our will to follow him. He's not going to violate uh, the way he's created us to be beings that choose him or reject him. He's going to leave that to us. And so uh, 
This is a question that's before us this morning. I don't know what God's been convicting you about lately as far as your life, but there are specific things in every single person's life that God is very interested in transforming because they are very destructive to you and destructive to other people. We call them sin, and it could be anything. And I'm going to cast a wide net because preachers will often, you know, list, list things like generic sins. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's this. And everyone's like, you missed me. <laughs> you missed me. Uh, I'm just going to cast a wide net. The Holy Spirit is always speaking, one way this way, one way that way, always convicting. Maybe he's spoken to you about something years ago that you did not heed or listen to, and you decided to rebel or resign yourself, and you've moved on. And really, so has he. You've resisted the Holy Spirit, and he's stopped talking to you about it. But it doesn't mean that's not important. There's something that, that God wants to change in every single one of us. If there wasn't, why would you be here? Why would you be in church? We're coming before the holy God, worshiping him, presenting ourselves to him, and saying things like, we offer you ourselves in worship. We want to be used by you. We want to be a part of your kingdom here on earth. This is the place of transformation. And so my encouragement to you this morning is, you know, whatever the Holy Spirit's saying to you or has said to you in recent days, um, you, have, you have options. You can rebel, you can resign yourself, or you can surrender to the king. But don't be like Felix. <laughs> when I find it convenient, I will send for you. Because you notice that was a fear-based reaction. He was afraid of what it meant to change that thing that Paul was pointing to very specifically. He was afraid what that would mean for him. He was afraid of what repentance might entail. He was afraid of, of, uh, of perhaps returning his wife to her rightful husband you know, um, in, in this case. He was afraid of being rejected by his wife. He, had, he was afraid of looking like a fool as a leader, uh, as a governor in, in, the, in politics. He had all this fear. That's enough for now. You may leave. That was his reaction. So this morning as the worship team comes, we're going to sing about the amazing grace of God. And I just encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to bring to mind uh, the things that he, he wants to speak to you very specifically. Maybe he's spoken them to you a long, for a long time, and they just ha are hanging out with you and, uh, and causing you harm. But all of us uh, have an opportunity this morning to, to bring those things out, to surrender to the king, to receive prayer, and to, and to live a more full and free life than we are currently living. It's, a, it's an invitation to everybody. And may we be a people that do not uh, ignore or take lightly the speaking voice of God in our lives, the voice of the Holy Spirit convicting us, leading us into righteousness, reminding us of the truth. May we be a people who, when he speaks to us, we say, yes, Lord, living that full and free life that Jesus intends for all of his children.